Welcome to the Not All Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and this is episode number 490. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, our guest today is evolutionary biologist Dr. Rui Diago. For centuries, philosophers have attempted to answer the question of whether humans are naturally good or evil. Despite the publication of thousands of works on the subject, no satisfactory answer seems to have been found. If philosophy hasn't found the clue, what do other disciplines say about humanity's propensity for good or malice? Evolutionary biologist Dr. Rui Diago, who will be at the Smithsonian Associates via Zoom November 5th, 2020 tells us what empirical research actually says about this age-old question. Drawing from the sciences, anthropology, history, sociology, and other fields, Dr. Rui Diago looks at what empirical data says about our basic nature and which society's members are more likely to do each other good or harm. In answers that might surprise you today, Dr. Rui Diago cites figures such as those charting homicide rates, life expectancies, suicide rates, types of foods consumed, levels of egalitarianism, frequency of sexual relationships, and stress levels around the world. You might not leave today's interview as a better person, but you'll definitely have a better idea of why you, and perhaps all of us, behave as we do. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show via internet phone, Dr. Rui Diago. Rui Diogo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, of course, and thank you for joining us. I think this is gonna be a fascinating conversation. Are humans naturally good or bad? And I wonder if you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Uh, yes, I'm actually very happy to be part of it because you know, I live in DC, so I go to Smithsonian very often. And the associates especially, you know, they have amazing talks and amazing programs. So being part of it is is just amazing. And yes, I'm very happy that this will be a reality. Yes. Well, it's as I say, I'm excited to talk to you about this. I think it's going to be a great presentation. I know our audience is going to just love it. So let's just jump in. The subject is vast. Are we naturally good or bad? And And it's one that is widely written about. Do you think we have a satisfactory single answer to this question? This is the old, old debate. You know? And nowadays we refer to it as Hobbes versus Rousseau, basically. It's a simplification, right? But Rousseau will say that people are naturally good and society corrupts them. And Hobbes will say the opposite, that people are naturally bad and brutish. And then society and, and central governments in, in particular will make them better. So this is even much before Rousseau or Hobbes existed, but this old question. And um, I do think that now we have more or less an answer because for a long time, the problem is that it was more like just philosophical discussions, right? So you will say that this is what I think. And if you think about it, it's a bit right-wing and left-wing, right? So Rousseau will be more like the the left wing and, and, and Ops, the right wing, and it will be a never-ending discussion philosophically. I think the difference now is that some people are gathering data, scientific data, to try to really address these questions, right? To try to really find, are we really good naturally, or do we really need central governments to, in order to be good, etc. The author that most people know is uh, Pinker, 
Pinker in his book Better Angels, he, he argues that actually, yes, he's an obesian, right? So he says that people are not really bad, but not really naturally good in the sense that the more the more central governments we have in, in history, the better we are. And he, he actually uses evidence, right? He, he says we have less crime now than 300 years ago. People don't torture so much as they did in the Middle Ages of Europe. People don't have slaves so much as they did in transatlantic slavery, uh, slave market, etc. But I do think that authors such as Pinker have a problem. And, and nowadays, there are a new generation of authors, I will say, that is really trying to compile data, but also having less biases. Because I think that we still tend to think that somehow, right, that's what you heard and I heard, that civilization is good and all these things, right? But people are more and more reviewing these questions with data, and that's an important point. And that's what I, I do in my new book, like really compiling data. And I would say that's also a problem with authors such as Pinker is that they don't really uh, differentiate between undergathers, right? That's what people see normally, if we are good or not naturally. Let's go to undergathers, people that hunt wild animals and gather wild plants, and that's what we were for six millions of years, right? Before agriculture, before sedentism. And so what these authors say is that, look, if you see hunter-gatherers, they are actually more violent, etc. Authors like Pinker, for instance. But nowadays we actually have, not different data, but the important point is that hunter-gatherers, there are two main different types. One is nomadic, so they go to from place to place. That is what we were for six million years, right? And then the other group, uh, the other type is the, um, the sedentary hunter-gatherers. Yes, they hunt wild animals, they gather wild plants, but they are sedentary. And amazingly, most people will not know this, but sedentary hunter-gatherers are much more similar to what we are in our societies nowadays. What does it mean? All mainly the bad, morally bad things that we will think about us, like having slaves, oppression, discrimination, racism, women being uh, being also oppressed. All these things really mainly, mainly started with sedentism, meaning nomadic hunter-gatherers, they don't have these things. Not really because they are noble, as Rousseau will say, but because there is no other way of surviving when you have a group that is maximum 100, 150 people. You have to share everything, including sex, including food, everything. Also, you cannot have slaves, of course, because you are moving from place to place. You cannot have like material possessions, really big ones. And if you have them, you cannot hide them from others, you know. So they had no option apart from being egalitarian, etc. So all these qualities we see as good is still a construction because good or bad is a moral construction, right? A social construction. But actually, they apply more to people that are nomadic hunter-gatherers, either before or the ones existing now. And then society, mainly having a big group of people, but much, much before agriculture, that's an important point for the, for the listeners. It's not only agriculture, much before agriculture, we already had hunter-gatherers that were sedentary, and those begin to have more wars, more hierarchy, because if you have a lot of people, you need a leader, for instance, and then you need organized religion. And all these things developed even before agriculture, actually. So when people talk about uh, American Indians from the California, etc., many of them were actually already sedentary. They had no agriculture, but they were already living in big groups in the same place, 
And they already had slaves, they had wars, they had oppressed women more. So these things always start normally with sedentism. And that's the models we use to really differentiate with empirical data. Are we better, not only better in terms of violence, but are we better in terms of this distribution, a community, egalitarianism? That is the kind of, of, and I do think that we have enough data, and I can talk more about that, mm -hmm. to, to really address quantitatively if we are really better or better off with the type of society we have or more naturally as we work for six millions of years. That's what we talk when we say naturally. It's something that was more ancestral and also much more time because agriculture is only 10,000 years versus hunter-gatherers nomadic ones that we were nomadic for almost uh, six million years. So it's a big difference. Well, maybe tell us a little bit about the research and data, your, your research and data. What, what is it saying about our basic nature that the question that comes to mind immediately is, do we know which society members are even more likely to do each other harm or good from the data? Uh, yes, yes. Um, so one example, the, the example I give in the end of, of my book is because I really want to compare with empirical data, right? So mm -hmm. I say, look, let's compare hunter-gatherers and the nomadic ones, right? Um, they still exist. They are groups that are still nomadic. Uh, and let's compare with, let's say, the, the most developed technological city in the world that for most people will be like Tokyo, right? Tokyo is what you think is really the most disconnected, we will say, with our natural... <laughs> typical environments for six millions of years, right? You have a metro with a lot of people, we have this craziness, we have technologically, it's amazing. And so we compare, and how do we compare these things? First, we compare who who works more, right? So like, let's say, in hunter-gatherers in general, nomadic ones, well, they don't really work, but they spend three hours a day, for instance, to hand, to build uh, small things if they stay a few days, to gather, plants, etc. Three hours maximum a day. So it's really different from this idea of hopes that they have a brutish, very violent, very desperate life. Most of them don't have any desperation at all because even if a fruit or something is, is gone, they have so much diversity of fruits and animals they hunt. Most of them actually have pretty easy lives, contrary to the idea of salvage that we, we built, right? And now let's compare to Tokyo that in average, most people work more than eight, nine, 10, even 11 hours or more a day. Mm -hmm. And we have data about that, right? This is a very famous story that you probably know. This uh, Mia Sado, a young woman that died by overworking. And actually there is a word in Japanese. It's, uh, if I'm not wrong, karaoke. Mm -hmm. Karaoke is the word for overworking. That is a common thing in Tokyo, right? So this is one of the difference I would, I, I would say, for instance. Another one is, of course, Nomadic hunter-gatherers have no limits. They can walk everywhere. They can see the fish, the birds, and they have a, a healthy in terms of mind life, right? In in also in Tokyo, if you I don't know if you know, but if you have been there, there is now this huge demand for really small but very small apartments. They have only five square meter apartments, and they are in vogue. And also there is a word that is kukuri. That is the type of apartments that actually are cool to be with. But you know, if you live in a five square meter. Uh, apartment for for so you work eight hours or ten hours or twelve hours and then you go home and you live a five square uh, meter apartment for three hours more and that's your life you know so so if you think about quality of life or the good life if you can talk about good or bad 
the uh, one more example is the ikikimori. It's a very common, like millions of people in Tokyo already uh, in Japan starting to ikikimori. People that live apart from society, they live in their rooms for years. Their parents will give them food, or someone will help them. Why? Because they have this disconnect actually even with society. And the last example is sex. You know, this is the kind of quantitative things we can really compare. Japan is the country in the world with less uh, frequency of sex. In average, they have less than one time per week. There is no other country in the world like that. In comparison, if I talk, let's say, about the Aka, that the hunter-gatherers nomadic people from Africa, they have sex at least three or four times a week, and each time is two or three times. So if you compare all these things that are, again, natural, and you compare with the most technologically developed society, and you see that there is a really big problem by, by overworking, not giving importance to to sex, to natural things, to the quality of food, to having space. And this is the kind of, of quantitative comparisons we can do about suicide. There is virtually no suicide in nomadic people. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they don't have any kind of depression, but also the society is built in a way that is helped so much the others. But Japan is actually not number one in the world, no, but it's still one of the 10 or, or 20 in the top. So this is the kind of, when you ask, are people in naturally good or do, do we naturally have a more quality of life, etc.? actually it was really reversed, mm. right? So now the book I recommend for the readers, there is Against the Grain. For me, it's one of the best books which really goes out of the biases and really shows that the story we, we heard, and probably most listeners here heard, and myself in university, about civilization, about revolutions leading us to more progress and better life and better people, actually is almost the opposite one. Nomadic people did not want to be sedentary. No, the sedentary people are the ones that live in environments that they actually could not have the resources to be nomadic because nomadic you need to have like you know a tree with apples and then you move to the next tree with apples so the same thing with civilization that book really shows empirically with written text historical text that when we first have these big cities and the big kingdoms right the civilization and, and etc it was not that the barbarians as we call them they wanted to be part of it. No, they wanted to escape from it. Nobody wanted to live that really horrible life with a lot of slavery and poverty and, and diseases in big cities. So people wanted to escape. The walls were mainly actually to not allow people to escape. And that's why the first writings, as Levi Strauss noted, was to make you, oblige you to pay taxes, oblige you to be part of the system. People did not want to be part of the system. So it's really the reverse of the story that we always hear. All civilization was so good. Everybody was... No, the barbarians were actually better off in terms of quality of life. They were higher statue. Uh, they had um, less diseases. You know, a very interesting thing is that when, when archaeologists find bones, the first thing they look at is if the bone is deformed, if they are smaller and more diseased, the bones indi indicate diseases. Because if they know that, they know they live in, in kingdoms. They know they live in agriculture. Uh, uh, nomadic people normally they don't have these curvatures in the in the in the bones. They don't have these all these diseases. Of course, they die also. People say, oh, but they only lived fifty years or something. But that's a big confusion, right? Because one thing is uh, expectancy of life, right? So they lived only in average fifty years because yes, many kids died in tribes and they still die, and that is a big achievement of society, right? Of civilization that as as people call it. 
because we really reduced a lot child mortality. And that is supposedly morally good, right? For reading our construction of good. And I think most, most people is good for a mother to not have the kids dying when they are young. But if the kids in tribes, hunter-gatherers, survive more than 15 years, then the life expectancy is actually the same. It's 80, 85 years old. You know, the quality of life was very good. It's just that children will will die more. But it's not that the ones that survive will not have a, a very high quality of life. So this is the kind of, of data we can compare. One example I have with my personal life. So when I was in the Caribbean traveling, you know, as you know, uh, some politicians call the Caribbean countries like those, right? As if they are an example of poverty, of everything that is bad, precisely, right? Humans as a brutish uh, uh, example. But when I was traveling there, I was seeing like the quality of life they have. You know, like I, I remember I was eating in a sushi place and they said the, the, the freshest sushi in the world because it was only one hour that it took from being fished in a boat to be in my mouth. So you think about the quality of fresh food. You think about the quality of life they have. They spend hours in, in talking in, in, with a lot of people in the beach, etc. And so I was wondering, and I said, I will study the, um, the life expectancy in these countries because nobody talks about this, but these countries really have to be uh, really high because the quality of life and it's so fresh and everything is so natural, right? So I was seeing, and in terms of, of centenarians per capita, uh, Dominica, for instance, that is perhaps one of the poorest countries in, in the Caribbean. They have, uh, as you know, cyclones, they have all the bad things. They don't have tourism, nothing. It's one of the poorest, most, most remote countries. And actually, if you see, they are the number five in the world. I will repeat, they are number five in the world in terms of having centenarians, more centenarians per capita. You know, nobody talks about these things, right? They don't come on, on these lists of, of hotspots, of centenarians, etc., because it goes against the narrative, right? They are not white, most of them. They have all these kind of things that we, we consider to not be a good life or or, or, a, or or a good civilized life, right? But in the end, actually, they have more centenarians than the U.S. per capita. And, and they don't have good hospitals, etc., because they don't have so much money. It's really the quality of life, right? The natural life. So this is the kind of, of quantitative data that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to capture mm-hmm. in my... Yes. That's very helpful. Thank you. We are, of course, with Dr. Rui Diogo. Dr. Diogo will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program coming up here. You can check our show notes for more information. Dr. Diogo, I, I have a question for you, just a, just a very simple question. Will we leave your presentation as better people? I actually think that we, that people that the, um, the talk could live as as better people, because in the sense that, what does it mean? If you know a bit about human nature, right? There are some some trends that could be avoided and those will make you a better person. So for instance, we tend to make narratives of purpose in life, let's say. This is a, a thing that humans naturally have. And some of them are good, of course, it's good to think that you have a purpose, etc. But those are also the same things that led to racism, to misogyny, to seeing the other. Because the, if the purpose is that your group is the chosen one or you are made at the image of a god and the others are not, then you begin to have this discrimination and these things and arguments for having slavery and all these things. So if you try to cut with that kind of narrative, you know, and the, the last thing I will say about that is that being natural, you know, it seems a, a cliché 
what is natural is good. But the more I read and the more I see things, yes, if you are natural, so what does it mean to be natural? Just think when you do something. Did we do this for millions of years? Or is this a very recent thing? Like, you know, right now, for instance, I have a, a mild uh, Crohn disease. It means that my, my, my bowel has a bit of problems. And the first thing that the doctors tell is don't drink milk, don't drink lactose. And you wonder, why Why do you think is that? Because, of course, there, is, there was a mutation. Most humans now can drink as adults uh, milk, etc. But still, that is only a very recent thing that happened in human history, right? Only 10,000 years you begin to have people drinking milk as adults. No other animal can do this. Milk is the worst thing for a, a mammal adult. So these are the things that are not so natural in the sense that they are so quick that we kind of adapted to them. But as the minimum problem you have in your guts or in your bowel or where, everywhere, you pay the price for these non-natural things. Mm -hmm. the, the last example I will give, and I think that's why people will think about this and, and perhaps being really a better person. People sometimes say, oh, whatever, but we are humans. We, we have a mind. We can, we can overcome what is natural and be more than just, you know, a body. That is a huge fight, right, with religion and everything, to disconnect with the body. We don't need our body anymore. We are more than a body. And I always give this example, in, and I give in my book, and it's also a quantitative example, right? So when you go against nature, when you go against, like, you cannot drink, you, can, you cannot not drink water. You can try to be as much mindful as you can, but you will die in weeks, you know, because it's natural to drink water. One example I also give is the Catholic priests, you know, is a, a very big subject. Uh, and as you know, even in the States, but more in other countries, because Catholic priests uh, is even more strict that they cannot have sex, right, with adult males or females or whatever. So if you think about that, what is the price we pay for they not refusing to do something that will be natural, right? To have sex with adults. Uh, there is no group in the world, no group, not religious, but not everything. There is no other group in the world that in proportion per capita rapes so many kids as Catholic priests. And then you can think, you know, just be natural because if you are not natural, normally you will pay a price, either your body or other people. Uh, and so that is a bit the message, you know, just be natural because actually most things naturally are good. Other things, of course, as I said, we decrease the mortality of kids, etc. And that is lovable, that is good. But most things that actually we morally consider as good, they were there for six million of years, right? That was really the paradise of Eden. And many anthropologists say that, actually. If, if, you, if you understand the Bible in an anthropological way, and there is an amazing book that two anthropologists read every aspect of the Bible in an anthropological way, that is the story of the Bible. There was an Eden. There was a paradise. And we left from that paradise. We left from the nomadic life. We begin to have cities and big diseases and all these problems that are typical and, and actually recurrent in the Bible. And, and that is a bit, we have to go back a bit, not com be completely tribal or, or nomadic. I'm not saying that. But we have to recover some of the good things precisely that we, we lost well, thank you for all of that. I just have one final question for you, and it has to do with our current circumstances in the COVID pandemic. I wonder what all of your research tells us about how we're relating to one another during this episode in, in history, this, this, this pandemic that we're facing right now. Yes, that's a very good question, because COVID brought some of our, we'll say, better things, and also brought some of our worst 
things, right? And it's very interesting. Actually, I gave a talk about COVID some, some months ago, precisely related with these questions. Mm. So one thing that COVID clearly shows, that is the good part of living in, in a society, right? Uh, because clearly we are paying a huge price for social isolation. People are, are buying aseolitics, people are having depression. So clearly we do need to have a society. And also because if you have a society, you can have tests, for, for instance, for free. I had nine tests of COVID in Washington, D.C. for different reasons, but they were free, right? And, and, they, and as you know, they are not free. So it's, 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 it's a society that is trying to help people that need. And that is the best part that came from COVID. But we also see the other not so good parts, right? So one of them is precisely the narratives. The narratives of conspiracy theories, for instance, saying that the COVID was uh, invented by humans to punish either old people or to punish Americans or whatever. And, and those are the dangerous stories because, again, narratives like that always lead to racism and xenophobia and all these things. And also even the narratives about the virus itself, right? When we say, oh, the COVID is a, is a killer virus and all these things that, that try to make people afraid, you know, COVID kills, yes, but COVID does not want to kill. Like, actually, if you understand something about biology, what the virus don't want is people to kill, to be killed because the virus will disappear. The virus is a, is a non-living structure that needs hosts to reproduce. That's why it's called non-living. You know, viruses are non-living, not like bacteria. Don't, they don't get out to reproduce by themselves. They, have to, they need the host completely. So they don't want the host to be killed. And you see, these narratives really create like a war uh, that, that uh, makes no sense biologically. But again, that's the disconnect between us and the last thing I will say about COVID, interestingly, perhaps I can ask you as a question, you know, infectious diseases like COVID, et cetera, are very, have been very bad historically, right? You know, the, the Black Plague and all these things, millions and millions of humans died. And so the question again, if you go again to the nomadic people, right, hunter-gatherers, the brutish ones that supposedly are all the time sick and diseased, do you think that they had problems with infectious diseases or not? I think they most definitely had problems with infectious diseases. I think that's what history says. Ah, but actually, well, there is a really nice book. It's called The History of Medicine. Nomadic people almost never had problems with infectious disease because if you think about, they, they were in small groups, right? Sometimes, of course, they could eat an animal like a bat and the animal could have a virus. And perhaps, like let's say, of the 100 people, yes, 10 or 11 will die. But the virus will go anywhere because for 15 days, that's the quarantine time, they will not see any other humans, right? Nomadic people normally, they don't see other groups for months or even years. So they could not propagate. Uh, infectious diseases actually only started to have to affect humans much more in the historical moment that big cities were developed. That is, that is actually what religion tries to cope with. And why do you think they will say, clean your hands, clean your food, like let's say uh, for Muslims, uh, against menstruation, all these things were because they begin to understand that there was something they could not know what because they had no microscopes, but there was something that was circulating that were doing all these bad things, all these plagues, etc. But they were not at all before that, you know. So, so when people call the brutish people sick, etc., they have to understand that actually, again, kids could die for um, dysentery, all these things, but infectious diseases or uh, or, for instance, uh, heart uh, diseases or diabetes, etc. They were not. These actually we call them modern diseases. They were not at all 
part of that life. So this is also something that we compare in terms of medical terms. Uh, infectious diseases is something recent, like 10,000, 8,000 years started to be with big agglomerations. They, they don't thrive. That's why even if they go now to Africa to pygmies in the forest of Congo, etc., they cannot thrive there because they, you know, they, they will not expand from, from group to group. Just fascinating. Dr. Rui Diogo, thank you very much for your time. I, I just learned so much. I know the presentation coming up here at Smithsonian Association is going to be equally filled with great facts and data and information. I am amazed that, you know, five square meters, just 53 square feet approximately is where yes. these people are living. And so some fascinating information from Dr. Rui Diogo. Thank you so much for your time today. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rui Diago, for joining me on the show today. And remember, Dr. Rui Diago will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates. And the title of his presentation is, Are Humans Naturally Good or Bad? Notes and details are available at our website or at Smithsonian Associates webpages, which we will link to in the show notes. My thanks to Smithsonian for their help with the show. And my thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please stay safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing. And remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>